reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever with me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us and keep us. O Lord, make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. O Lord, lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. So for the last several weeks, around 30 adult members and friends of our church and a number of high school youth have been exploring a very uplifting topic. (laughs) Evil and the doctrine of original sin. And I think our classes have been on to something in talking about this topic because it's arising and bubbling up from a lot of different sources. If you woke up this morning to NPR as I drove into church today, turned on and the topic of the day was original sin. Someone thought that perhaps I had infected their alarm clock uh, and engaged them in another lecture about the topic. And I hope this sermon isn't like a lecture on a not-so-uplifting topic, but I do believe that this conversation is one that is arising now in this time of what's happening both in our country and in our own own lives, that we're trying to understand who are we? Who are we? And in teaching the class and in preaching this sermon, I want to return to a story from my childhood that is also not so uplifting, that has sparked in me these kinds of questions. I was walking home from school, from first grade, when my friend David and I approached on a corner, undeveloped lot, a baby bird, a baby robin, that was struggling to lift up off the ground. We stared at wonder in this primal mess of movement. This bird was wildly flapping its wings, shaking and buzzing like an overcharged pager telling us that the table is ready. Nearby, I saw a rock. And for reasons that still escape me, I picked up that rock. And this is where the story gets a little heavy. Because the the rock looked a lot like home plate which for Cubs fans today is a very good thing. Flat, five-cornered, but more tragically for that baby bird, it was 
only heavy enough to do the job, but not painlessly or quickly. It took several of my throws to still that baby bird, whose mother I will forever recall tweeted her mournful lamentation on the branch overhead. All the little birdies on Jaybird Street winced to hear that bird go tweet, 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 rockin' robin. I went home and I told my mom what had happened, partly boasting, wow, we saw this baby bird and oh yeah, that other part. And whereas my friend David, whose parents gave him a good spanking, I received from my mom a firm and loving explanation of what I had done to that baby bird and to its mother. I didn't need a spanking because the guilt and shame that I felt was enough, though the mother robin perhaps would beg to differ. And this moment confronted me with the complexity of my own self-understanding. I was not that kind of kid who liked to fry insects with magnifying glasses or set fires or break toys like that messed up kid in Toy Story. I was a good boy. Though the way many of you are looking at me right now, I feel like I'm a little bit in danger of losing that <laughs> distinction. But if I were a good boy, how could I make such a choice? And not just make a bad choice, like it was the wrong door to open or the wrong fork in the road, but to actually take pleasure and delight in it, even for just a moment. How could someone conceived to be so thoroughly good be so bad, perhaps even to the bone? The doctrine of original sin seeks to answer that question. The doctrine says that it is the inherited corruption of our nature, a corruption that traces all the way back to Adam and Eve, who chose the logic of the serpent over obedience to the Lord and thus ate the forbidden fruit. St. Augustine in the 4th century wrestled with his own youthful indiscretions, shall we call them, and formulated this doctrine. And he cites the Apostle Paul who said in Romans, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. So from this interpretation, our confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith, we didn't write it here, but it's in our tradition, says that we are, quote, all utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. Taken to its full conclusion, this doctrine states that we are born with this sin, that it's not just what we do, it's who we are. I was born guilty, the psalmist said, a sinner when my mother conceived me. So from this, our forebear, John Calvin, 
would say that even infants bring their condemnation with them from their mother's womb. For they have not yet, though, for though they have not yet produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness, they have the seed implanted in them. Their whole nature is a seedbed of sin. At the last minute, I took that out of the baptismal liturgy. What if that were part of our baptismal liturgy? How could it be? But Pascal, in writing about this doctrine, says, Nothing jolts us more rudely. And yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. G.K. Chesterton would go so far to say that this doctrine is the only one in Christianity that can be empirically proven just by looking at all of the brokenness and sin in ourselves and in the world. So I wonder, when you look around Westminster, do you see original sin? It's here, and I'm not looking at any of you particularly. But I'm looking at our patterns of worship. We begin each week, as we did today, by proclaiming the wonder and glory of God in word and in song. And then the first thing we say about ourselves is what? That we are sinners. Not that we are created in the image of God. Not that we bear the imprint of our creator who fashioned creation and called it good. But that we need God to mend who we are and who we shall be. This morning we said in our liturgy, as we have before, there is no health in us. And I wonder if that caught your attention. That we are saying in, part, in a way that no part of us could be independent or not in need of God's healing and grace and glory. That, as we say in our tradition, we cannot be the authors of our own salvation that we are reliant wholly on God's grace in Jesus Christ, which we accept in faith. And which we say is good news. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But there are many in history and in the present who struggle with this pessimistic understanding of human nature. A current Celtic writer named Philip Newell writes, This distorted tune that is original sin, echoes within the walls of our sanctuaries and it haunts the inner chambers of our lives. It is obsessive-compulsive disorder on a massive scale. And that is troubling, both from what it says about what we do here every week and for those for whom this disorder is a real and living thing. Newell is arguing an argument that goes back to all the way to Augustine's time when a man named Pelagius, who was a deeply faithful teacher, who was condemned as a heretic for his understanding of the nature of humankind, would say, no, we are not corrupted in our nature. He was a glass-half-full kind of guy who emphasized that at any given moment we have the freedom to obey the commands of God. If not, why would God even command us to do them. Why would God say, do this, if we couldn't do it? He would argue. 
Now, Augustine would fight that argument because, in part, it was open to the charge that this made Jesus unimportant. That if we could do it on our own, why would we need Jesus Christ? Why would we need to be baptized? Why would we need the church? And so Newell picks up on this argument that we are sacred not because we are baptized, but because we have been born. And so this leads me to another story. This week, Community Lodgings is a local mission organization, uh, and they provide housing and mentoring for homeless communities, uh, especially families, women, and children who have suffered from domestic abuse and violence. And they had a breakfast uh, in the crowded ballroom of the Old Town Holiday Inn where a 7th grade middle schooler from George Washington Middle School described with a grace and a poise and a maturity that were beyond her years how she had, through this program, changed from a troubled youth who struggled at school to become a straight-A student with dreams of being a pediatric oncologist. And she talked about the joy that she felt one day recently when she found out that she had won a prestigious essay award. And then after she spoke, a woman named Denise, who went by the name Denise, though that was not her real name for matters of self-protection, described how she and her young children suffered at her husband's hands. And she got to the point in her story where she remembered that it was her birthday when she had learned that she had been accepted into this program. And so she looked up from her prepared remarks to that seventh grader and said, I guess good things do happen on our birthday. Indeed. No doctrine of our self-understanding should lead us to believe that the birth of a child is anything but miraculous and joyful. Not one that brings more sin into the world, but more joy. Poet Marianne Williamson writes, We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And we must be able to conceive of ourselves in such a way that embraces that potential. And yet, we must also understand ourselves in such a way that takes seriously the chronic sins of our society that creates issues like homelessness and the deep individual wounds and distortions that can motivate a husband to strike his wife and children or a young boy to kill a baby bird. Indeed, this is why we pray our prayer of confession. I did some research about Westminster and looked at old bulletins from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I found that in the Cliff Johnson era, well known to some in this church, in the 40s to the 60s or so, we did not pray a prayer of confession in our worship. We did not either in the 70s with Don Campbell, nor regularly in the 80s with George Para. It wasn't until the 1990s that our worship every week included a prayer of confession. I think perhaps my Generation X drew us over the edge on that one. <laughs> and I bring that up to say that we should and can 
pray our prayer of confession every week, not because we think it's what we should do because it's something we have always done, nor should we also take it away, an element of worship that is so meaningful to many of us, including myself, a moment in worship that helps us be honest with ourselves and before God and receive the amazing grace with joy and thanksgiving. But I do believe that when we sing so habitually of our need for mercy, we are prone to forget, as Newell laments, the tune of our origins in God, the divine image that threads through our being no matter what else tangles in and around it. Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist, is thought to have said that the opposite of one profoundly true statement is not a false statement, but another profoundly true statement. And I view that as an invitation for us to understand ourselves in terms of the corruption and sin that we cannot overcome on our own and for which we are held accountable, and, and celebrate the truth of the divine image that we carry as creatures of light who are capable of bearing that light. We do this both and move all the time in the church. Our scriptures have two stories of creation, back to back, both very different, but both claimed by the church to say what we believe about who we are and what creation is. We rely on four Gospels to describe and understand the one Christ, who we believe to be both human and divine in the fullness that only he could carry. We believe that our works are not the pathway to eternal life, but that faith without works is nonetheless dead, that it is in dying that we inherit eternal life. Our faith does not need to be like a game of poker where two players go all in and push their chips at the center of the table, subject to the whims of whatever mystery will be revealed underneath the cards. Sinners, yes, we can be flush with good news. We can be a full house of those who seek to walk straight in the life of God. So I know that some of us would walk out of here if we took away the prayer of confession. And some of us would walk out if we even intimated that a child is damned at birth. Instead of walking out, maybe we just need to receive the wisdom that both perspectives bring. And keep walking in the direction of faith and obedience. My spiritual director encouraged me recently to just take the next right step. And that simple wisdom seems to be helpful when we try to wrestle with a very complicated set of beliefs. Step away from the rock that injures and step towards the life that struggles to take flight. Step away from the self-inflicted or external abuse and step towards help, towards believing again that We were born to make manifest the glory of God, that the day of our birth was indeed a day of blessing, that it was an echo of the day that God created all things good. When we are invited in stewardship and in mission to give of ourselves, 
We need not stand on the foundation of our originating sins, but step towards the love that we can share, the good that we can do, the giving that we can render. We can be mindful of our chronic sins, but not walk in shoes that are too small for us. My dad would say that he thought we were essentially, people were essentially 51% good and 49% bad. And I took that to mean, as others have said, that the, the arc of justice in the universe is long, that it will take time for us to reach that perfection that Christ wills for us, but that we must walk in that direction and believe that we, even in our sin, can do it. The Apostle Paul writes that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let us, in our worship and in all we endeavor to do as church and as people, live as those who are created by a God whose goodness is our image and whose, despite the chronic nature of our sin, lives are claimed by the Christ who calls us and empowers us by the Spirit to bear those fruits. Amen.